I'm Ewan Bremner and you're listening to Reflections, Art, Life and Love from the National Galleries of Scotland. This is the series where we study the length and breadth of human experience through the eyes of diverse artists. The tool of every self-portrait is the mirror. You see yourself in it. Turn it the other way and you see the world. So said the late and much revered filmmaker Agnes Varda. If you're prone to pick up your phone and take a selfie, to peer in a shop window or study your reflection, you're in good company. The artists we'll hear about today have used their work to explore their own identities or used their image to interpret the worlds they inhabit. You never even have the slightest inkling of what her own individual personality is. He continues to photograph himself and it's not him pretending to be someone else, arguably the performance of his life. A lot of what's done online is almost trying to recreate what's raw and real. The state should not be making decisions about what artists have seen and what art is appropriate. Throughout time, portraits and self-portraits have captured not only artists at a point of self-reflection, but individuals at a particular point in culture and society. Decisions made capturing a moment tell us a lot about the passing dogma of a time. After all, what is the self? When we all have the power to construct and control a persona, a personal brand. Some artists capture the transience of identity and social norms. But how do you make a legacy out of portraiture? And how does your medium reflect a moment in time? We're going to start with a titan of modern photography. The late Robert Maplethorpe explored what was shocking, personal and private. Using primarily the human body as his anchor, he inadvertently opened dialogues on the layered and fluid nature of human identity and in doing so opened a political can of worms. His work is arguably about as intimate as it gets and for that reason became a piercing comment on contemporary culture and belief. We met Anne Lydon, who recently curated the exhibition Self-Evidence with works by Francesca Woodman, Diane Arbus and Robert Maplethorpe at the Scottish National Portrait Gallery. We're looking at a self-portrait that he made in 1988 and it shows his face somewhat out of focus and his hand is holding on to a cane and the decoration on the cane shows a skull. And it's a, a very mysterious image in many ways because we don't really see his body. Um, what's actually happening is he's, he's dressed in a, a black polo neck, a black sweater, and that is then sort of blending into the black backdrop to the point where his head becomes almost disembodied and is sort of floating in the middle of the, the composition. The hand is, is very much um, to the front of the composition and in, in sharp focus, unlike his face. He originally had set the scene where he was kneeling on the floor, holding the cane in his hand and his body and, and head sort of parallel. But at this point in time, in 1988, Maplethorpe was, was very ill. The sort of pain and the toll on his body from kneeling was too much. And so with the help of his studio assistant, Brian English, and his brother, Edward, the two men sort of eased him back onto a chair. And with that, the scene was somewhat 
disrupted, so his, his head is sort of further back and removed. It becomes this very evocative image of a man who knows that he is dying, knows that he is in the final months of his, his life, and really kind of encapsulates this in-between state. The portrait with the, the skull cane was made just months before Maplethorpe's death. And if anything, I think it becomes all the more potent because it becomes a permanent record of him actually being here, of, of being alive at this moment in time. As an image that we now look upon today, it invokes in all of us a sense of our own mortality. Robert Maplethorpe was born in Queens in New York City in 1946, just in time for America's post-war boom. He studied art in Brooklyn and afterwards took up residence in the Chelsea Hotel with his friend and lover, the musician Patti Smith. She worked in a bookshop to help fund his art, and the expanding circles of acquaintances and friends led him from celebrity portraits to depictions of gay culture as well as underground and BDSM scenes of New York City. In Patti's words... He took areas of dark human consent and made them into art. In Maplethorpe's words, though, he was looking for things he'd never seen before and in finding them felt obliged to take the pictures. We are in the Robert Maplethorpe Photography Gallery, which is located on the first floor of the Scottish National Portrait Gallery in Edinburgh. Maplethorpe uh, had attended art school. Uh, he didn't study photography originally. He came to photography after he had graduated in the early 1970s and had been given the use of a Polaroid camera at first and was making a number of self-portraits. And then when he was given a Hasselblad, he started to adopt a more formal practice, if you will. What's interesting is that the, the work of the 70s, a lot of it you could see as being somewhat theatrical in that there's a kind of performance taking place before the camera. Um, he's adopting various guises and personas. There's props that are being used, different kind of costumes. As the years go by, though, and as he is given the diagnosis that he is HIV positive, which at this point in 1986 was a death sentence, he is acutely aware that his life has forever changed. And so, in a way, there's a kind of change from these characters that he is playing out in front of the camera, and instead he continues to photograph himself, but they're arguably more candid. We're seeing him now, and it's not him pretending to be someone else. Arguably, the performance of his life. Maplethorpe, I think, has always had courage to do things that others may shy away from. And if we think back to some of his more notorious images from the 1970s, his sex pictures, there's the same kind of bravery and courage there in presenting oneself in what was a kind of vulnerable state at a time when homosexuality was not legal across the United States, to be so open in showing that you were a part of this, this group, this community, this culture, and doing it in such a provocative way was really a bold statement. If nothing else, 
Maplethorpe knew how to work an audience, how to identify different markets and, and sort of appeal to those. So I, I think he would have been a, a real leader and innovator probably in what could be done using digital technology and social media platforms. I think Maplethorpe was very concerned about his legacy and actually put measures in place in 1988, just um, before he, he died, to establish the Robert Maplethorpe Foundation. And this was a means to ensure that his estate would be able to carry on, to, to effect good. And there were two distinct goals for the foundation, which is to further photography and also to research and support into HIV and, and AIDS studies. For me, I think it's, it's interesting to be in the gallery looking at a dozen or so of his self-portraits together where you very clearly can see this trajectory of his life. There's just a powerful passage of time and with that uh, a kind of encapsulating of life basically. Maplethorpe said, I come from suburban America. It was a very safe environment and it was a good place to come from in that it was a good place to leave. His art, being at once classical in form and often challenging in subject, allowed him to slip between identities, engage in the worlds of his subjects and in doing so find the most intimate truths. In this way, Maplethorpe's legacy is tied up with his identity. The complex nature of the artist and his desire to reconcile the truth of being a nice suburban boy to a bohemian city dweller embedded in alternative cultures and lives. I'm Fiona Anderson. I'm a lecturer in art history in the Fine Art Department at Newcastle University. The controversy around the exhibition The Perfect Moment actually began at its, in its second iteration, so it had already been exhibited in Philadelphia. It was an exhibition, an overview of Mapplethorpe's practices, so some of his homoerotic photographs with uh, scenes of S&M, photographs of flowers, photographs of children brought together. Controversy arose about this kind of relationship in the exhibition between gay eroticism, sadomasochism, um, and some of the other kind of representations of naked figures. The challenge to the exhibition, the sort of call for it to be closed, rested a lot on the fact that funds for the exhibition came from the National Endowment for the Arts. So it came from public money. It's important, really important to consider that this is happening in the context of the HIV and AIDS crisis and also the rise of the conservative far right in the United States. So this is happening in 1989. HIV and AIDS were seen as, as moral crises as well. So uh, you have Ronald Reagan, the president at the time, for example, describing AIDS as God's punishment for homosexuals. You have politicians into the early 90s calling for people with AIDS in America to be quarantined, something which a third of the US population supported when polled. The other important side of the sort of sadomasochistic and homoerotic aspect of, of Mapplethorpe's work and how this fed into this moral crisis around his, the exhibition The Perfect Moment relates to a court case in 1986, so just three years before this exhibition, a case that went to the Supreme Court, Bowers versus Hardwick, which basically stated that it was not legally permissible for two 
or more men to have anal sex in their own home. So if we think about it in that context too, it's not just about HIV and AIDS, it's also being shaped by the fact that public sentiment around homosexuality is that it's obscene. And you see with the perfect moment when it went to Cincinnati, you have individual curators and directors putting their careers, their lives really on the line to support this exhibition. And that was partly supporting it on uh, aesthetic grounds, saying you know, he's, he's an important artist, his subject matter often happens to be homoeroticism, um, but you also have many people supporting it because they're saying the state should not be making decisions about what art is obscene and what art is appropriate. So when the exhibition was not permitted to take place at, at the Corcoran because of this uh, funding controversy, a Washington public uh, venue took it on and it was hugely popular there. And also when it was shown in Cincinnati, it had, I think, 80,000 people visited it during its run, a huge number for that space. So actually the censorship of the exhibition and all that controversy made it more appealing and to audiences made more people hear about his work so he did certainly have the support of the art going public and many politicians. And today the pictures are still explicit but are they as shocking? You can see for yourself at the Artist Rooms exhibition at the Scottish National Portrait Gallery until the 20th of October 2019. Admission is free and you can explore the work of Francesca Woodman, Robert Maplethorpe and Diane Arbas for yourself. Portraiture may be as old as the hills, if slightly more subject to change. But technology develops all the time. Where Maplethorpe was experimenting with the Polaroid camera, modern photographers and portrait artists have a world of devices freely available to explore and manipulate depictions of their subjects. When I was a kid, it was a big deal if your mate got you in focus on their Kodak disposable. But young people now seem to be recording, assessing and changing their images with stunning self-consciousness. It has never been so easy to make your own self-portrait, several times a day and publicly. What does this mean for the way we see ourselves? Does it make us more or less introspective? For the Artist Rooms exhibition, the National Galleries of Scotland worked with groups of young people to reflect on the work of Robert Maplethorpe, Diane Arbus and Francesca Woodman. My name is Tony Jake Green and I study at Forth Valley College in Stirling. Hey, my name's Olivia. I study art at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Isabella and I study fine art at Edinburgh College of Art. We were tasked with comparing these photographs that are on display in this exhibition and approaching them in a comparative way and we're asked to consider them in regard to the images that we see day to day, perhaps on social media or within magazines or in the public sphere on billboards just in advertising and whatnot and so some of the images that you'll see in this exhibition are ones that we were able to take of ourselves and of our classmates. I think I'm probably most related to Woodman's work. She in her work seemed to talk about identity in relation to architecture and how she felt in a space and I often feel I change how confident I am in a space or depending like where I am and if I'm sat down in a classroom you feel more confident than if you're stood up so I think the way she was choosing to portray herself and show her body as a 3D object in a space and talk about identity in that way I understood what these artists did and what they sort of pioneered to talk about themselves have almost become like aesthetic cliches that we now recognize you're like oh yeah I've kind of seen that before but 
really we haven't because these are the originals who did this. I think a lot of Woodman's work done now, I'd say it's almost edgy, whereas like before it was something raw and real and meant something. But I feel like a lot of what's done online is almost trying to recreate what's raw and real. I think it's mimicking something that has been done before that was. We're constantly faced on a day-to-day, almost hourly basis of people exploring their own image through selfies or photography or perhaps if you're an art student like us in drawing and painting. And it wasn't all that much of a stretch to consider how we might adapt these photographs to appear as if they were a day-to-day image that we might take of ourselves. The main difference between selfie culture or uh, visual social media and these images is that when you're taking a selfie it's usually for like a reason it's usually you're going to a party or you've just climbed up a hill or like you have just put together this amazing outfit it's usually a way of associating yourself your face with the sphere you're in and saying I am this kind of person because my face is attached to climbing hills because I've just climbed this hill and it's the the surroundings you're in. Whereas I think with a lot of these photographs in the exhibition, they have started from what is inside and gone, I am a person who puts on a million guises or people are the homes they make around themselves or I am a person who identifies with space physically and gone, okay, what is inside me and how am I going to paint that in these photographs? The main difference between these self-portraits and selfies is there isn't much out with this is me looking my best. It's a photo of myself with something that says something about me and maybe something about me says something about others. I think one of the reasons why I like making artwork is that I can express all these things and it's something other than me. A whole world of questions that seem more relevant than ever. Let's hear about some other artists who have experimented with the changing nature of their identities. Looking through the collection at the National Galleries of Scotland is Keith Hartley, the Deputy Director of Modern and Contemporary Art. We're we're talking about visual artists here and I think The identity often comes in self-portraiture by artists looking at themselves, often over a long period of time. Rembrandt is a very good case in point. And seeing how they change, not only over a long period of time, but also from day to day, from hour to hour. I think that artists always been interested in individuality. There's a very famous Rembrandt self-portrait in the collection showing him in old age, you know, showing every wrinkle and it's, it's a wonderful study in depth psychology and how these things get reflected in the face. Whereas Cindy Sherman adopts a very different way of not really looking at herself. She says, and quite rightly, I think, these aren't self-portraits. They're sort of types 
really. Cindy Sherman is a very well-known American artist um, who uses photography as her medium. And she started off doing these film stills, I think they're called, black and white, often quite small photographs, picking up tropes from Hollywood films. As time went on, she started looking at often more grotesque characters, started using colour, much larger photographs. We have two works in our collection, one showing herself as a very grotesque clown, another one as a slightly ageing Belle, Southern Belle. It is always amazing, looking at Cindy Sherman's work, to see how she can transform herself quite considerably. You never even have the slightest inkling of what her own individual personality is. Douglas Gordon, the Scottish artist, also is fascinated with identity and also the fact that we are not a unified person, the devil and a a saint. He started off doing it in self-portraits, perhaps one of his best-known films that he did with the French artist Philippe Parreno, Zidane, a 21st century portrait. And this is a portrait of the great French, or he's originally Algerian, football player. He and Parreno had cameras all around the, the pitch at this football match. But they were all trained on one person. And you see the frustrations and the, the triumphs and the concentration, I think. Thank you to all our guests for taking part in this episode on self-identity. We've asked some important questions about the nature of self-image and hopefully inspired you to visit the galleries or at least have a Google for the works discussed. You can find all the artworks discussed on the website at nationalgalleries.org. You can check out the work of Robert Maplethorpe at the Artist Rooms exhibition at the Scottish National Portrait Gallery in Edinburgh until October. And if this show has got you thinking, tell a friend about it, share it on your social media and subscribe to the next. I'm Ewan Bremner and thanks for listening to Reflections from the National Galleries of Scotland. I'll be back next time.